So we're in the midst of a sermon series that we're calling Boot Camp for the Soul. And the whole idea of this image of boot camp is that it's a short, intense, rigorous period of training that helps us to be better. And so Boot Camp for the Soul is my hope and my prayer that throughout these 40 days of Lent that you and I would be involved in this short, intense, rigorous training where the goal is to improve our spiritual lives or to enhance our souls and our spirits. Today's passage of Scripture is this text from 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 through 13, and the title of the sermon today is Redefined. Redefined. Now, Uh, I find it amazing when I sit down to look at a text that I'm going to be preaching on, just how God speaks to me or what things I begin to notice about the text and how different they might be from one time of reading that text and to the next time I read that text. And so this morning's text, as I was reading it and reflecting on what I might preach about today, I kept coming back to that thing that so often we let other people define who we are. So often we let the world define who we are. So seldom do we let God define who we are. That's the epiphany that came to me as I was reading the text this week. And and like Sean, when his children's message, I started thinking back to how... Where does this start? And I I really believe that it really starts back when we are our children. I I mean, I I came from a a middle class, the lower middle class family, and my mother and father didn't have the money to buy me the brand name of clothes that everybody was wearing during those days. And I allowed that to define me. I allowed that to mean that because I couldn't wear all the cool clothes that I wasn't a cool kid. Now, I can look back on it now, and I can realize that wearing cool clothes doesn't make you a cool kid, necessarily. It can make you a jerk, but it doesn't make you a cool kid. Like Mr. Sean, when I remember when we would play football in the neighborhood, we would pick the two captains, we would have them to choose the teams, and how I was often the last one that was picked to play football. And I allowed that to define me to say that I must be unathletic, which looking back on it, that wasn't the case at all. It's just when we were playing neighborhood football, I was the skinniest, scrawniest guy in the neighborhood. And football, at least West Madison Street football, was all about size. We couldn't throw the ball, so we would just hand it off and you'd just try to barrel over people. But I allowed being picked last to define me as being unathletic. I can remember when I was a teenager going to some of those teenage dances and and not being asked to dance, and I allowed that to define me by saying that, well, I must be a terrible dancer. If you've seen me dance, you might say, yes, we agree, Tommy. But I'm guessing it was less about my dance moves, and and I'm guessing that the reason why I didn't get asked to dance is because they were as nervous about asking somebody to dance with them as I was nervous about asking them to dance. And when I was a kid, I decided that because I didn't like bugs, that I couldn't like science. 
And what I realized is it wasn't that I didn't like bugs. It's just I didn't like it when my brother would take them and put them down the back of my shirt every single day of my existence. But I allowed that to define who I was. And as I've gotten older, I realized that allowing other people define me wasn't an accurate definition of who I was at all. And I think that that's what's going on in this passage of Scripture this morning. Now, before we dive into 1 Samuel chapter 16, it might be helpful to do just a little bit of a recap so that you'll know what's been happening right before now. Samuel's been leading the people of Israel as a judge, and he's getting kind of long in the tooth. He's getting a little older. Well, he's got two sons, and he thinks that his two sons will take over for him when he is no longer to serve as judge, and they will continue to judge the people of Israel. Well, the elders of Israel don't like this idea at all. According to the Scripture, they say that Samuel's sons are both corrupt, and they don't want those two sons taking over for Samuel and being the judge when he's no longer fit for the job. And so instead of receiving the two sons as their judge, the elders of Israel begin to demand that a king be appointed to them. And, and Samuel is trying to help them to understand that you don't realize what you're asking. This is not a good idea. You see, you already have a king, and your king is God. You don't need an earthly king like all of the other nations around you. But the elders of Israel are beginning to define themselves based on what everybody else says and what everybody else does. And since everybody else has a king, they want God to appoint them a king as well. And even though this is a terrible idea, I can just imagine that God ultimately just gets fed up with it and God says, okay, okay, I am going to give you what it is that you want. Even though it's, it's a horrible plan, I'm going to give you a king. And so God tells Samuel to anoint and appoint Saul as Israel's first king. And let me just tell you, Saul passes the eye test. I mean, this is a tall, good-looking, handsome guy, powerful. By all outward appearances, he is the perfect person to serve as a king. But as Mr. Sean said in his children's message, you can't always judge a book by its cover. And even while uh, Saul looked like such an impressive person on the outside, on the inside, there was something else going on altogether. Uh, it didn't take long for this King Saul to begin to reject God and to not listen to God and not do what God told him to do. And it didn't take long after he rejected God that God ends up regretting ever allowing Saul to become king. And once God begins to regret the fact that Saul is king, God makes a decision that it's time to get a new king, and God rejects Saul as king. And by the time we get to the end of chapter 5, after Saul has been rejected by God as king, we're told that, oh, Samuel is mourning. He is mourning. 
Now, we're not told why he's mourning. Maybe he's mourning because the kingship of Saul has ended just about as quickly as it began. Maybe he's mourning because he has put a lot of time, effort, and energy into trying to help Saul to be the very best king that he can be, all for naught. Maybe he is mourning because he has disobeyed God uh, in the way that he's conducted himself as king of Israel. Maybe he's mourning because he realizes that that this is not going to end well for anybody, and it grieves his heart. So at the end of chapter 5, we find that Saul is mourn, uh, Samuel is mourning. At the beginning of chapter 16, which is our scripture lesson today, we find out that he's still mourning. We don't know how much time has elapsed since the end of chapter 15 and since the beginning of chapter 16, but Samuel is still mourning. And the way I read that first verse of Scripture is God is like, get over it, Samuel. Stop mourning. And, and I don't think it's God's way of saying that mourning is not appropriate. When something happens that grieves our hearts, it is absolutely uh, important for us to grieve and an appropriate amount of grief. But I think maybe what had happened here is that God felt like that Samuel was mourning for entirely too long, that he was spending so much time reflecting on what happened in the past that he was unable to appreciate what God might be doing in the present or what God might have in store for them in the future. And so he's like, why are you still grieving, Samuel? Uh, and, and, and this grieving, focusing on the past more than on the future, was preventing Samuel from being available to go and do what God wanted him to do, to, to, to be the person, to live the life that God desired for him to lead. And so he's inviting him to, to turn away from his grief and to go and do what God wants him to do. Now, it's probably a good idea always to listen to God when God wants you to go do something, but what God is asking Samuel to do is a little bit more than Samuel has bargained for. Because God is saying to Samuel, I want you to go and anoint and appoint the new king, but there's only one problem. The old king is still on the throne. And that's a good way of getting yourself killed or at least thrown into jail. If you go off while there's a king in power and you start designating another king as being the rightful king of the land, that is not a good thing. You know, I, I wish that Samuel, I bet Samuel wishes that God would have just said, okay, we're going to take Saul off the throne before we put somebody else on the throne. I'm guessing Samuel would have appreciated being told, all right, here's exactly what's going to happen and what we're going to do and how it's all going to end. But Samuel doesn't get any of that. Samuel is just told, you need to go to Bethlehem. You need to look for a man named Jesse. And at the appropriate time, I'm going to tell you which one of his children will be the next king. You know, that's the way God often works. God seldom gives us every single step of the plan that God wants us to be a part of. God just gives us that next step. And 
we're invited to take that step in faith and to trust God and to, and to listen for God's voice and to be willing to respond to God even when we don't know where it ultimately might lead us. And so we're told that Samuel does as God directs and that Samuel goes to Bethlehem to look for the man named Jesse and his family. And wouldn't you know it, the people of Bethlehem, they aren't any more excited to see him uh, than, than um, the, he would have been otherwise. And so they said to him, uh, why are you here? You see, they probably thought that Samuel, being a king maker, was coming on behalf of the king. And if you're coming on behalf of the king, there's a good chance that you and Bethlehem are going to have to give up something of yours so that the king can have it. Or maybe they heard that the He's on a quest to find a new king. And so maybe they're afraid that this is a king breaker that's shown up in Bethlehem. And that, that if they have anything to do with this guy anointing and appointing a new king, then they will suffer the same consequences. And so God has helped Samuel prepare for this moment and says, I want you to focus them instead on the important ritual that you're going to be about while you're in Bethlehem the ritual of sacrifice. And so the elders at Bethlehem sort of relent and, and Samuel finds Jesse and, and all of a sudden they begin to parade all of those children of Jesse uh, in front of them. Now remember, they're looking for the next great king. And so when Eliab passes by, he passes the eye test, just like Saul did. He's tall, he's handsome, he's powerful, he's good-looking, and yet God warns them not to be attracted to this physical qualities. It doesn't matter what brand of clothing he wears. It doesn't matter that he's the first one that gets picked for the neighborhood football game. It doesn't matter that everybody wants to dance with him at all of the Bethlehem social events of the season. It doesn't matter whether he likes bears or bugs or barracudas. What's on the outside doesn't matter nearly as much to God as what's on the inside. And so God tells Samuel, don't be tempted to look at just the outside but look at what is going on in the heart. We're told that seven different sons pass in front of Samuel, and each one of those sons, he does not discern from God that that is to be the next king of Israel. And then he asks if there are any more sons, and it turns out, according to 1 Samuel, there is an eighth son, which is an interesting number. If you think about in biblical times, seven was the number of completeness. So they've gone through seven. It, this, this eighth is, is beyond completion. This eighth is an outsider. This eighth is a marginalized person. This eighth son wasn't even invited or allowed to be a part of the ritual of sacrifice, but was instead told to stay out and keep maintaining the sheep in the field, but God looked at the eighth son David and said, this is the one, anoint him. 
Now, I love the first thing that the narrator says after we're told you're supposed to look on the inside, not the outside. After the outsider comes in and he's the one that's chosen to be the king, the narrator says, oh, and he was a good-looking dude. It's as if even though we know that it's what's on the inside that counts, even though we know that should be the guiding principle of our lives and, and, and our judgments, that we so easily can revert back to what brand of clothes people wear, whether or not they were the first person picked on the football team, whether or not they got everybody's invitation to dance, or whether or not they excelled in the classroom. So Samuel anoints this boy, David. And that anointing with oil is a way of setting David apart. And here's the neat thing. David had no idea what he was being set apart for. He had no clue when he was anointed with oil that day what God had in store for his life. But it was so important that he be set aside that, that, that he'd been set aside for an important purpose, even if he didn't understand what that purpose is. God had a plan for his life, and even though David didn't understand it, didn't even know it, apparently David was willing to be a part of living into that plan. And make no mistake about it, David was far, far from perfect. And he's going to mess up as much or as often as you and I mess up. Yet he was willing to be a part of what God wanted him to be a part and to do what God wanted him to do. And I believe the same should be true for each one of us. I believe that every person within the sound of my voice, that God has something that God desires for you to do with your life. God desires for you to live in such a way that others might come to know the good news of God's great love and by looking at your life and your example that others might be willing to respond to that. And it appeared at first glance that David was not the one. It appeared as if David's Lot in life had been defined by his brothers and by his father. And yet what God did was to redefine David's life, David's purpose, and what David would do for the kingdom. I believe that that's what God wants us to do. That God longs for us not to let other people define our lives, not to let the world define our lives, but to allow God to define who we are and what we're supposed to do. And God doesn't expect us to be perfect. All that God longs for is that we seek to have the heart of God and that we seek to be vessels through whom 